Well, good morning. Uh, Breakfast with the Broker every Tuesday at 9 a.m. We are very fortunate. First of all, this is our first not in-person interview. Uh, Certainly, uh, there are reasons for that, which we all know. Uh, But I am very, very happy to say that I have um, a very extremely reputable doctor um, in the house. And uh, he has been very in tune with COVID-19, has put uh, a lot of insight in social media and such. And Dr. Thomas Klein, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So, you know, uh, so this is, uh, you know, if if someone says unprecedented one more time, (laughs) uh, but it truly is unprecedented. Uh, You know, we were talking a little bit off camera that, you know, this was kind of something that was predicted or was eventually going to happen. Um, You know, in the medical community, people really kind of feared this, correct? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when we're we're going through this and we're in, uh, you know, this kind of crisis mode, you know, there are, you know, I don't know, misinformation that's being put out there. Uh, You know, what is... What does safety precautions mean to you as far as, you know, when realtors are in the industry and they're, they're out, you know, whether they're showing, you know, one-on-one um, properties, hopefully they're keeping some safe. You know, what are some maybe tips that you would uh, give to uh, some of the realtor uh, real estate community? So I think that the, the general advice that's out there is meant to serve two different purposes. And they might sound like they're the same thing, but, but they're fundamentally different in the way we approach them. One is what can you do to keep yourself safe? And then what is it that we can do as a, as a society to, to help limit the spread of this disease, right? Because the fact of the matter is right now, it seems like everyone has this virus and it's all over the place, but the, the data indicates that that's not actually true, that actually it's a fairly low, low prevalence, certainly in our community right now. And so it's, it's this combination approach of what can I do to protect myself? And then what can we do as a society to help limit the spread so that it doesn't become something that's completely out of control? Um, and those two things, in many ways, you do the same things, but the goals are very different. So for, for personal protection, the, the single best thing you can do is wash your hands, right? Because the way that most people are going to be getting this is by touching something with their hands and then touching their mouth, touching their eyes, touching their face in some way. Um, and that's the most likely way of catching this. So making sure that you wash your hands when you're in a house and you're showing a house, trying to limit the number of surfaces that you touch. Um, a lot of people say, should I be wearing gloves to help with this? And the answer is actually definitely not. And the reason that is, is that uh, wearing gloves leads to a false sense of security. It's not getting the germs on your hands that's a problem. It's touching your face with those germs. So wearing a glove doesn't stop that in any way, shape, or form. If you touch a doorknob with your glove and then touch your face with that glove, it's no different than than with your hand um, without that. So washing your hands is the single best thing you can do. Um, social distancing is, or, or physical distancing, I should say, is actually the, the other most important thing you can do because the other way that people um, are going to get this is by um, having someone cough on them, sneeze on them, or breathe on them. And so um, so keeping your distance from someone else is going to help you stay safe and also help them stay safe. So again, when, when showing properties, those are probably the two biggest things, making sure that um, 
before and after you go into a house, washing your hands, you know, before you go in and after you come out. And then while you're in there, making sure that you keep space from whoever you're in there with. So you're going into a room. If it's a small room, just let let the client or the other realtor go in and, and you know, you keep your distance um, from them. In terms of wearing masks, the fact of the matter is, is that a mask is doing very little to protect you from anything else. That mask is really one of those societal things that the more people that have masks, it's sort of adding to that social or physical distancing. It's enhanced physical distancing by preventing those droplets from getting out of your mouth onto someone else. But in terms of virus in the air getting into you, those masks are doing very little to stop that. And so, I mean, you posted a, a little bit, um, I think uh, last couple of days regarding the, um, you know, statistics of what you projected without social distancing or without some of the stricter measures that we've uh, come into contact with quarantining and such like that, um, that you projected a significantly higher um, fatality rate um, if if we didn't do certain things. Because, you know, the, the problem is, is that, you know, I don't want to call it younger people, but, you know, people think that this is like an old people's disease or an old, you know, older, you know, because all you hear on the media is 65 that, 65 that. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, I don't, it doesn't seem that it's much fun for anyone under 65 either. Right. right. So initially oh, yeah. when word was coming out, um, there was definitely this message that it's only people who are 65 and older who are at risk. And, and that's just clearly not the case. Yes, older people are at higher risk than younger people, but we're unfortunately seeing many young, sick, young, healthy people who are getting very sick from this disease. Even if you're not getting hospitalized, you're still um, getting, can potentially get really sick. And, and that's one of the, I think the real misconceptions about this, and that was something early on that I found surprising, is that when, when the studies were coming out, they were saying 80% of cases are mild, 20% of cases are hospitalized, and someone in the neighborhood of one to 5% lead to death. And when you hear 80% are mild, that sounds like, oh, it's no big deal. But all mild means is that you don't get hospitalized right? But you can have a very severe illness that doesn't require hospitalization. I have a, a friend of mine who's in her 30s, healthy young doctor, who um, she for weeks couldn't get out of bed without her heart rate shooting up to the 150s, basically like she was, you know, running a marathon or something um, because of this disease, right? She could barely move. Those all count as what we call mild cases because they don't end up in the hospital. Um, so, so saying that young people don't get affected is not true. And even, even the young people that do affect, get affected, some of them are ending up in the hospital. And unfortunately, some of them are also dying. And we've had several of those cases even here locally just recently. So I, I just saw a question by uh, Michael Glickman. If you wash your hands when you come home, how often should you wash your hands if you are staying home? Yeah. So the, the most important thing is if you are coming from out of the house into the house, that's when you really want to make sure that you are thoroughly washing your hands, right? Everyone knows that you're supposed to wash your hands for 20 seconds, but most people don't actually do that every time they wash their hands. When you come from outside the home, inside the home, that's the time to really take the time to pretend like you're a doctor going to the operating room and you're trying to scrub every last germ off, right? Going on over every finger, scrubbing the fingertips, going around the, you know, your thumb, all of those things to really try and get 
whatever you Hi. Okay. So most of us can't stay hyper-focused on what we're doing with our hands all the time and touching our face and, and so forth, especially when you're in the house. So the big thing is when you're out of the house, trying not to, to touch your face when you're out, really focusing on it. When you come home, really washing those hands thoroughly. Then while you're at home, I think it's pretty much um, you know, usual standard. You want to wash your hands before and after you go to the bathroom. You want to wash your hands before and after before you eat, um, those sorts of things. But I don't think you have to be hyper, hyper vigilant in the house. Yeah, you know, it's, um, you know, it's it, it, the washing the hands thing is, you know, when you look at the culture of what we've been going through in the last, you know, three, four weeks, is that it's actually nice because people are actually washing <laughs> washing their hands because not everyone uh, does, <laughs> does so right. uh, it's kind of it's kind of good, uh, you know. We were we were talking a little bit about culture, you know, off uh, off camera, and you know when we were talking about um, culture, we were talking about like shaking hands, you know, like some of the things that some of the normal behaviors uh, pre COVID nineteen. Um, may or may not, you know, come back. Um, and I think we were talking about fist bumps and stuff like that. I do you think the culture of, you know, what 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 is post COVID nineteen going to look like uh, uh, instead of pre COVID nineteen? Um, so, sorry. Yeah. Um, so, the, I think the big difference is that. It's not so much what's going to be dictated to us. It's going to be what we really feel comfortable with. And and I think there's going to be a significant period of time where people just don't feel comfortable with the close contact. As it is, I, Sorry, I think your connection is a little bit. Uh... Myself was the company. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah. So people are instinctively walking to the other side of the street when they see someone coming just to get that separation. Those are things that the longer we do this, the, the more lasting those things are going to be, where it's just going to become sort of instinctive that we're going to try and keep separation, that we're not going to want to get that close contact. And how long that takes to feel comfortable um, is, is anyone's guess. Like, like we were saying off camera, you know, when are you going to feel comfortable going to a concert or going to a sporting game? If the NFL or college football is open, are you going to feel comfortable being in a crowd of 100,000 people? Um, and, and the answer is for a lot of people, it, it's not going to be anytime soon. Now, I think eventually life will normalize, but things like that are going to take time. Going to the movies, right? Things like that. It's just going to take a while before anyone feels comfortable doing that again. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, look, you know, we're we're being adapt. We're being forced to adapt technology like the, like uh, the stream yard and Zoom and all these different things. And, you know, um, are you also doing a, like Zoom uh, uh, consultations with your patients? Yeah. So 100 percent of my consults and follow ups are now being done um, as telehealth. Uh, still, because so I'm a radiation oncologist, which means that people have to come in the office to get their radiation treatment. So those patients obviously have to come in. But as much as we can do remotely, we are doing remotely. And I think, honestly, that that's something that will be carried forward, um, not, not just in medicine, but in a, a lot of different fields, right, where companies are going to start realizing that they can do a lot of things remotely. And that's going to allow them to cut down on office space. And it's going to allow people to cut down on their commute times. And and so I think that that's one of the big ways that society is going to be restructured 
in the in the near term is that we're going to have a lot more um, of these sort of remote things happening. And we're really kind of, I mean, and we were talking again, I mean, we're kind of fortunate that, you know, I mean, you know, if you want to look at some positivity, uh, you know, we're kind of fortunate that it happened during this time where we were able to actually, you know, um, do these Zoom meetings and virtual meetings and, and StreamYard meetings, because, you know, I remember going to Disney World and seeing that carousel of uh, modern, you know, and they had the whole video thing and we're like, oh, that's so far away. You know, or, you know well, here we are. And, you know, and, and dealing with the uh, pandemic pretty well. I would, I would yeah, I, you know, I think about my kids at home and what it would have been like when I was a kid to have, you know, the hand full of TV channels, that's basically it. And, you know, nowadays, all the streaming services and the books you can download and the online classes and all of that. I mean, in many ways, yes, we are fortunate that if it was going to happen, it happened now rather than uh, years ago. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I remember as a kid, I was, I'm tired of moving those rabbit ears so that I could see the... Uh... <laughs> Uh, channels. Um, it's pretty funny, but, you know, so, you know, in your professional opinion, what should we, you know, uh, I guess the, the topic keeps coming up is, you know, when are we opening the economy up? You know, when, when is it going to be, you know, when's the curve going to be flattened? You know, when's the curve going to, and, and when is the decision to really start to open certain things up that are um, maybe non-essential that, um, to, you know, to make them a, a little bit more essential. Um, so, in your opinion, yeah, go so, ahead. I'm sorry. I'll give you sort of two takes on it. One is is the purely medical take. What does it take to get this virus absolutely under control? The other is what should we do as a society, right? And I think that those answers are very different because the reality is, is until a vaccine is available, the only way to really to to fully stop the spread of the virus is to stay under quarantine for 18 months. Well, so that's from a purely medical, how do you control contain a virus, right? But the reality is society can't hold out for 18 months. That's just not a realistic, reasonable, feasible approach. So, so what do you do? I, the best model that I saw for what this is likely to be is that um, at some point in the next several weeks, um, maybe month or two, um, you're going to start seeing these quarantines or these shelter-in-place orders being lifted across the country um, earlier in places that have already seen their peak. So, for example, New York is at their peak right now, and so they should be able to lift their orders in, in the next few weeks. Um, Florida is several weeks delayed, so our peak is projected to be sort of end of April, early May. So we may be under sort of stricter guidelines until mid or late May. And then you're going to start seeing these guidelines lifted. And, and what's really going to dictate how we, we act is going to be what the numbers in the hospitals and the ICUs look like. So it's going to take, um, you know, a lot of testing and a lot of monitoring of the hospitals. And as long as the numbers in an area stay low, things are going to be able to be relatively normal. Now, um, as numbers start to bump up in an area, that's when you're going to start to see local authorities presumably say, okay, well, right now we're going to have to you know, close the schools. Right now, we're going to have to temporarily shut down restaurants or make sure that restaurants are at 50% capacity. Right now, we're going to have to limit these particular sorts of interactions. Um, and if, 
if numbers start to bump up again, that's when you're going to hear, you know, okay, we have a two-week shelter-in-place order. And that's that's sort of the assumption. And, and some areas that don't have such a dense population may never get to that point where they need to shelter in place again, right? A place like New York, I would be very surprised if once they fully lift restrictions, if you don't start to see virus creeping back up again, right? That's just the nature of a densely populated area like that. But somewhere like we live down here, you know, Palm Beach County, where it's not not these tightly packed cities where most people are driving places and so forth, I think you're going to see these sort of escalating and de-escalating measures over the next 12 to 18 months, but but not this strict quarantine that we have right now. Great. And, um, you know, I, I don't know how much you're in tune with this, but, uh, you know, doctors and not doctors <laughs> have been talking about, like, uh, the combination of ZPAC and hydrochloroxine or something, uh, uh, yeah, the malaria drug. Yep. Um, you know, uh, what is your just your professional opinion on you know because what's happening is it's kind of made people in a frenzy to get these drugs and 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 i know personally i know people that you know suffer from lupus or from arthritis and things like that that those drugs uh, uh seem to help as well and they can't get them so um yeah. you know i guess what's your professional opinion on some degrees of these treatments yeah so first of all you shouldn't think of this as a as a true treatment or cure for the disease. Sort of like taking Tylenol isn't a treatment or a cure for the disease, but it does help, right? So taking Tylenol, breaking a fever does help and helps people get better. That doesn't mean it's getting rid of the virus. It just means that it's helping people with symptoms. And so, so hydrochloroquine and a Z-pack are not going to be the be-all, end-all for this treatment. That's just not how viruses work. The be-all, end-all for this treatment is either going to be this um, recovered patient uh, plasma, right, the convalescent patient plasma, where they're doing these trials now to see if people who have recovered from this are producing antibodies that can be used to help other people fight the disease. That's one true way of fighting a virus, the way is to prevent it with a vaccine. So those are really the two things that are going to be true treatments for this. In terms of the combination of chloroquine and z right? So the reason that there's interest in this is that there have been many small studies looking at these drugs in terms of um, helping uh, people recover faster, okay? These drugs are not going to prevent this disease and they're not going to cure this disease, but they might help some people recover faster. In some small studies, um, they have shown benefit, but in other small studies, they've actually shown significant risk. So the biggest thing um, with hydrochloroquine is something called the prolongation of the QT interval, which has to do with your heart rhythm. It can affect your heart rhythm in a, in a potentially very dangerous way. And there have been reports of people coming in who have been self-medicating with hydrochloroquine on the outside, who have come into ERs um, to be found in these dangerous abnormal heart rhythms. So just taking hydrochloroquine is not a good idea. Testing it to see if it can be used in appropriate clinical settings is absolutely appropriate. It's, those tests are going on all across the country. And if the drug shows some benefit, it's going to be used. But these reports that it cures 100% of people are just complete nonsense. Um, yeah, you know, it's, and that's why I kind of I wanted to, to bring you on is because, you know, a lot of times, you know, especially in our advent of social media and, you know, and 24 hour news networks and, and, you know, uh, you got to be first without sourcing anything. And, you know, no one uh, looks and fact checks and all these different things. Uh, you know, it, it, it's nice to, 
you know, really hear kind of what the truth is and then, you know, what not the truth is. You know, it's, uh, it, it's tough in this, uh, in this society of uh, wanting to be first. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's one of the things that's challenging, in this, uh, you know, in this world where everything moves so quickly is that medicine often moves very slowly. You know, a lot of people are saying, well, when are we going to have a vaccine? The answer is we actually already have many vaccines for this virus already, and they're in use right now, but they're in use in trials, and we can't actually use them widespread until we've tested them, right? That's that's the issue with medicine is that you can't you can't just say something works without testing it because all of the things that we do have side effects, and a lot of the things that we think should work don't. So until you've shown that something is safe and that it's effective, you can't go out there saying, well, this is the way to, to fix this problem. So, you know, getting back to like the, you know, realtors and, you know, we've uh, in the state of Florida, we've been deemed an essential business and, you know, and we're helping buyers and sellers move and, and certainly and we're practicing social distancing and doing some safety things. And you mentioned, you know, as we're showing potentially showing properties or walkthroughs or those kind of things, you know, how likely is it, you know, that if you walk through a home as a realtor, and you don't touch surfaces or you don't touch your face and you wash your hands immediately after, you know, is there a, a good chance of a good probability that you, you could get it if someone had, uh, was positive with COVID or, you know, I mean, I'm just giving you hypothetical situations to make realtors feel either comfortable or not comfortable. So again, part of the issue is what is the true prevalence of the disease around? Right. And, and the data suggests that it's actually quite a low prevalence, which means that for any given interaction, the likelihood of getting the disease is actually very low because the likelihood of the people around you having it is very low. You know, again, there's this presumption that, oh, everybody has it and it's all around us and so forth. But if that were the case, then the hospitals would already be completely overwhelmed. And what we would be doing right now with all this social distancing would basically be pointless. These measures that we're taking right now with all the social distancing all work under the assumption that actually the prevalence of this point in time. In any one given where you are out in the, you know, you're showing a house, the likelihood of you getting sick is very low. We just want to keep it as low as possible. So again, washing your hands, keeping your distance, limiting the surfaces that you're touching, right? Sort of keeping in your mind this idea that any surface could be contaminated. So I'm just going to limit my interactions with surfaces as much as possible, right? If you have to touch a doorknob, you have to touch a doorknob, right? You can't magically open the door, but you don't have to necessarily touch those, you know, granite countertops or whatever, um, just to make sure that they're there. Absolutely. So, the, you know, the, the um, oh, it says if your kid's family has stayed at home for two weeks, is it safe for a grandmother who has no underlying conditions to visit and interact in the house with them? So that's actually a common question. There are a few things that, that unfortunately, I think the answer is no. So already the grandmother, assuming that she is 65 or older, that's already an underlying condition. You don't need any more underlying conditions than that to be considered at high risk from this disease. So um, just by being 65 plus, you're at high risk. The other thing is that that kid's family that stayed home at two weeks, have they had zero interactions at all with the outside world? Has no one in that house gone to a grocery store? Has no one in that house gone to a pharmacy? Has no one in that house over any period of time interacted in any way, shape or form with anyone else? 
chances are that there's been some interaction with at least one member of the household that is then potentially bringing um, virus into the home, right? That is the concern. And so that's why you're trying to limit those interactions as much as possible. At the end of the day, people are going to have to make their own decisions, but but for sure, the risk is there. That's that's the big challenge is that complete isolation is actually not something that we're doing right now. You know, this isn't communist China where when they implemented Uh, I think I lost the connection a little bit. Okay, sorry. Yeah. yeah, so they were basically sealed in to their apartments until they tested negative. That's not what we do here. So, so that unfortunately for that grandmother who wants to see her grandkids, it's I can't say that that's a safe thing at this point. See them through the window. <laughs> right. Um, you know, and I, I'm a stats guy, right? Uh, you know what? Are hand sanitizers effective until we're able to wash with soap and water? Yeah, so hand sanitizer is definitely better than doing nothing. Even when using hand sanitizer, you definitely want to try and really rub it in. So just putting a little bit on and going like this is not the same as getting it into your fingers and on the fingertips. Um, uh, so yes, hand sanitizers are effective. They aren't as good as soap and water. So when you do come in the home, um, you know, when you're going from sort of high risk area to what you want to be a safe area, for sure, soap and water is the way to go before eating soap and water is the way to go. But when you're out and about, if you've got a bottle of Purell in your car and you're using that, that's certainly a good option. So uh, two last questions and I'll let you go. And I very much appreciate your time. I know you're busy. Um, you know, one is, you know, I'm a stats guy. Uh, you know, I look at Palm Beach County. Um, you know, I look at it as 1.5 million people in there and there's 80, I think 81 or something like that um, fatalities. Listen, that's a lot of, you know, fatalities to the people that have been affected. And I certainly don't want to minimize that by that. But there seems to be a significant amount of people that are either not getting, you know, the, the COVID-19 or they're, you know, whatever. I mean, as far as the fatality rate, you know. I think that gives us maybe a false sense. I don't know. Um, but I'm looking at it and saying, you know, why are we doing all these different things if, you know, we're trying to help a very, very small segment of the population? Um, yeah. What would you say as a medical professional uh, to that? Because I, that's what I the answer or the comments I get a lot. Right. So the reason it's such a low percentage is because we're very early in the pandemic here in South Florida and because we've taken undertaken these social distancing measures. The mortality rate in Palm Beach County specifically is by far the highest in the state of Florida, right? So the the for the number of people who get infected there's a very high mortality rate here in Palm Beach County, and that's presumably because we've got an older population of people who live here. So, so that is definitely not an argument. The other thing is that we are talking about exponential growth here, and that's that's what's very difficult to people for people to wrap their head around. So, um, when we were when New York was at the peak of when New York was sort of in the thick of things and not doing their social distancing. We were seeing a tenfold increase in deaths every 10 days. So what does that mean? So we've got 80 deaths now. Well, 10 days from now, we would be at 800. And then 10 days after that, we would be at 8,000. And then 10 days after that, we would be at 80,000, right? That's how quick.
quickly. So you're talking about to, so, so, um, so that's why it's so important to nip things in the bud. The same way that when you advise people to start investing, you tell them the younger you are when you invest, the more that's going to accrue over time and why it's so important to do that, those measures early on in life. The same is true with this virus, where the earlier you act, the, the more lives you're going to save in an exponential fashion. And that's why it's so critical to be doing it now. The other thing is that the numbers that we're seeing here, again, are on a two to three week delay from, from places like New York and the Northeast. So really, it's going to be the next two to three weeks. You're looking towards the end of April, early May before you can really say, oh, what does this virus look like? And and sort of project out what it would have looked like had we not done all of these sorts of interventions. Awesome. So uh, th thank you very much. Uh, last question I always ask is, uh, what do we not know about Dr. Klein that you care to share here? <laughs> that is a great question. Um, yeah, I don't I don't really have much of an answer to that one. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I'll, I'll put you on the spot. So we very much appreciate. Uh, thank you for all you do. Um, you know, I know uh, a lot of us who are not in the uh, medical community. Um, we re really do appreciate. We do consider you guys heroes. And we thank you for all that you do. Thank you for answering our questions and such and uh, hopefully alleviating some concerns as well. Yeah, and it's my pleasure. And if there are any questions that people want to direct to you after this is over, I'm, I'm happy to answer them, you know, trying to get sort of the most reasonable, fact-based sort of information I can. Perfect. Be well, stay safe, and hope you and your family are staying safe. And uh, we will talk soon. Take care. Thank you. Thanks, you Dr. Klein.